it's Akko. And it's Marcy. And welcome to a bonus episode of the Colored Pages Book Club. Yes, God. Okay, bonus episode. Yes. Right? So if y'all remember, we read Dread Nation with Curtis from I Found This Great Book last year, Mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy that it was last year, but here we are. I know. Like what? Um, like what? <laughs> right. Here we are in the future. Okay, anyway, so. Right. Oh, okay, yes! <laughs> um, so. <laughs> so. Rebecca Sugar would be so proud. Right? She'd be like, ah, shout out. Crossover episode. Yes. Anyway, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, anyway, Justina Ireland, much like Steven Universe Future, wrote a sequel, and we read mm-hmm. it, and <laughs> we're going to tell you about it, so. Yes. <laughs> and not only that, but after we have our summary discussion, as well as our discussion of the book as a whole, we're actually going to be joined by Curtis from I Found This Great Book and Justina Ireland. What? So stay tuned for that. It's going to be super lit. And yeah, so when we say it's a bonus episode, this episode is, yeah, just like extra gift for our listeners. And so, you know, next week you will be getting your regularly scheduled episode but it's just something to kind of like you know throw in the middle because why not you know so yes and also just quick preface we are going to be talking about deathless divide the sequel to dread nation and like there will be some spoilers but our interview with justina island should be one that doesn't necessarily have spoilers like that so if you are like intending to read it and like don't want to hear spoilers definitely skip to the interview section which will have the timestamps in the show notes but otherwise yeah let's just like talk about it ready yako all right so just to give you guys a quick, give you context, you know, place us in the landscape of the discussion. So mm-hmm. Deathless Divide is a sequel of the original book called Dread Nation. And basically the background for Dread Nation is that it takes place in a fictional past where during the Civil War, the dead came back to life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, boys. Um <laughs> And they call them shamblers. Uh, clearly, I, it's like, don't quit your day job. But like, also, you know, <laughs> you could get a side gig. <laughs> come back, listen, everyone needs a side hustle. Right, everyone. Anyway, so so they come back to life and they call them shamblers. And it's basically just zombies. So because mm-hmm. America is racist, um, they start using various minority groups to fight the zombies and to act as attendants for richer white folks. So mm-hmm. having an, an attendant is basically your personal zombie fighting human who has usually a sword or in some cases a gun and they like protect you from from zombies so uh, there's like now a whole social political status around zombies and fighting zombies so Catherine and jane are two black teenagers who attend a prestigious fighting school called miss preston school for girls where they learn how Mm -hmm. to fight and everything's kind of going sour over time because well they live in baltimore and usually the shamblers are like a little further away and not in the city. And Baltimore is supposedly clear of shamblers, but people mm-hmm. keep seeing them around. So everyone's like, oh, right. it can't be that clear since there are shamblers around. And like, <laughs> like why, is, why are there shamblers at the grocery store, hon? Like, <laughs> right. What is this? Like, no, what's going the They're like, shamblers. listen. <laughs> <laughs> we got questions. So so and not only that, for, for Jane and Catherine, the story sort of takes off when Jane's boo thing, Jackson, is off to find his younger sister, Lily, who's gone missing. So Jane, mm-hmm. Catherine, and Jackson do some Scooby Doo level sleuthing, trying to figure out what's going on. And mm-hmm. that eventually gets them in trouble with Miss Preston, who we didn't know this at the beginning, but she was actually selling Preston girls to like different places to mm-hmm. fight shamblers on the front line of like the shambler apocalypse. 
So the three of them get got and are sent to this place called Somerville, which is this like religious, supposedly shambler free place that's it's got all these rules about how God said something and everyone should do a thing. It's some messed up right. stuff, but they're all there. Yeah. And then they're, it's about to like get really bad for them. But luckily, Mr. Redfern, who is a Napa Indian man, who is kind of sometimes on their side, kind of not on their side sometimes, kind of saves that them. That motherfucker really be playing like hopscotch, honestly. <laughs> like, like she'd be really jumping on that line. And it's like, can you pick? Like, I right, need you right. to like, be with us or not with us, girl. Right. Like, what is this? And yeah. He just does whatever. But so he, he kind of saves them, kind of not. And Catherine and Jane get separated from Jackson and end up in Somerville, where they meet Mr. Gideon, who is actually, first plot twist, Gideon Carr, the son of a rich townsman from Baltimore. <gasps> mm-hmm. dun, dun, dun. Yeah, um, the mayor of Baltimore. So like... right. She got money, like right, (laughs) like money. (laughs) And so, him and Jan kind of a thing, but like not really. It's a little unclear. But more importantly, the story really, Mm -hmm. really kind of ends. Like the the apex and the climax of the story is that Somerville gets overrun by shamblers. Which, by the way, Jane warns everyone about that it's happening, but they're like, "What?" So it gets run over by shamblers. Jane finds Lily and Jackson and a bunch of girls from the city from that city specifically and they all flee and that's the end of book one right and real quick before going into book two so i guess this movement like so places like somerville are kind of they're considered like i I think they're like survivalist towns like that's kind of like the movement so there's like survivalists who are people who are like oh yes like people of color should like give their lives to white people by like defending them from shamblers and then there are the what was it um the even Evangelicals? No, that's not it. Wait, what's what's the name of the other movement? Where they're like not into that? Oh, girl, I'm forgetting the name. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, there's like... (laughs) Continue. I don't know. Another movement where basically it's like people are choosing to instead like work together and not like use like, you know, the outbreak of shamblers to like, you know, reinforce like racial biases. So in subjugation and things like that. So yes. So now in Death is Divide. So everyone leaves Somerville. And by everyone, I mean... Jane, her best friend, well, not best friend, but I guess emerging friend, Catherine, Jackson, her previous boo, Lily, Jackson's sister, and then, like, the Duchess, who, there are these three women, the Duchess, Sally, and Nessie, who were, like, sex workers in Somerville, and then, like, baby Thomas, who was Lily's, like, family's son who's like literally like six months old like like a baby he's a baby so all of them are like (laughs) all of them are like escaping somerville and basically they're all trying to make it to this town called nicodemus which is where other girls from miss preston's are like said to be and like that's kind of like the destination they're like oh like you know nicodemus has like like a more peaceful racial structure like it's kind of like a safer place for us to be and kind of just like figure out next steps and also too so jane is from a plantation called rose hill where her mom lived as well and her mom, like Jane and her mom had been sending letters all throughout book one, um, you know, just like catching up and stuff. And we come to find out that Jane's mom actually now lives in California. So that's kind of like yes. the eventual like goal, I guess. So while they're going to Nicodemus, the eight of them, Jackson gets bitten by a shambler and like turns into a shambler. But Jackson, I guess, actually, no, it doesn't really, like, he starts to turn into a shambler, but then Jane like cuts his head off. So like, 
he dies. Lily is naturally pissed, which, I mean, fair. So they make it to Nicodemus, and shit just goes, like, just immediately south. Like, so so south. for, like, 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 a hot, like, a hot second, like, Jane and friends reunite with this girl named Sue, who also went to Miss Preston's, who Jane was like, oh, this is my best friend. Sue is my best friend. And then, like, we literally never heard from Sue again. Like, <laughs> like Jane mentioned Sue in Chapter 2 of Dread Nation, and now in, like, That's true. Chapter 6 of Deathless Divide, we hear from Sue <laughs> She's again. finally like, back. Sue yeah. has taken literally the longest vacation. I'm like, where were you, like, the whole... <laughs> Anyway, so like we're reunited with Sue, who actually plays a much bigger role in this book. A girl named Ida, who also lived in Summer... Was it Summerville or Summerland? Um... That's what, regardless, whatever it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, Ida from who was in Somerville, let's just say Somerville, and then this new girl named Callie, who's actually from Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus is actually kind of like cute because yeah, like like I mentioned, like you know has a very different racial structure. Like yeah. a lot of black people there tend to be you know in positions of power. Um, like the mayor of Nicodemus, for example, is black, and I think that's also Callie's dad. There are also a lot of people in Nicodemus who are like mixed race. Like they're both black and native, and so like it's just kind of an interesting, very different landscape from Somerville. Right. Or even Baltimore. True. Yeah, very true. So, like, everyone's like, wow, this is wild. Mind you, though, like, the, the joy is short-lived, though, because there's hell of shamblers outside. Like, OD shamblers, but there's, like, like a like a, like a a gate. And so people are like, oh, girl, we're good. We, we got a gate. It's like, but bitch, shamblers, stop at nothing. Like, this gate is only going to keep you safe for so long. And to waste more time, Jane gets arrested because she killed the sheriff of Somerville, who was a complete motherfucker, by the way. That bitch, oh my God, absolutely deserved it, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, he was awful. Right. So she gets arrested, which wastes, like, hella time. Oh, yeah, by the way, Mr. Redfern, the one that's, like, super morally ambiguous and, like, kind of, like, jumps back and forward, like, he's the sheriff of Nicodemus, which... Right. Everyone's okay. like, even they in the book were like wait how did you how we just saw you and he's like like we just right my bitch we just saw how are you whatever he's like you don't know me (laughs) you don't know what i'm capable of (laughs) so yeah so he's like the sheriff and so he's like oh jane don't worry girl we're gonna get you out blah 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 but she's like girl i'm not even really worried about that like we gotta like we it's hella shamblers but whatever so jane eventually gets out but the shamblers get into nicodemus so it's like damn and so like Nessie, Sally, the Duchess, and Thomas, all of them turned. So turned is basically when yeah. someone turns into a shambler. So they all turned into shamblers and like Jane had to kill them. And while Jane was fighting off shamblers with Catherine, Ida, Sue, this guy named Lucas, who honestly isn't that relevant, no shade. Um, Lily, I think that was it. So they're all trying to like fight the shamblers and get out of Nicodemus. And like they tried to warn people, but you know, like people were just like, not Oh, listening. whatever, we'll just like stay in our homes. It's like, girl, your 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 home is not gonna pr- Anyway, so they're fighting the shamblers. Jane actually gets bitten. And so when, like, you know, when you get bitten, that's, like, it's it's curtains, honestly. Like, that's when mm. you turn and it's just, like, a mess. And so Catherine obviously is, like, heartbroken, but is able to escape with Sue, Ida, Lucas, and Lily. And so at this point, Jane stays in Nicodemus because she's, like, she feels herself turning into a shambler. So she's, like, let me just, like, fight off as many as I can. And then it's assumed that she dies, basically, or turns. And so, now there's, like, a time jump of, like, a like a year and a half. And so, Catherine... Were you about to say so, 100 episodes? Yeah, I was about to say. I was, I was like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually, like, <laughs> Deathless Divide Shippuden. Um, so, like, <laughs> so, at this point, so, you know, so a year and a half passes. And so, Catherine is now traveling with Sue. So, Catherine and Sue had gone through New Orleans, and they're now taking a boat to California with this guy named Carolina Jones, who's, like, you know, fun and lit. And then, meanwhile, Jane actually survives because in book one, she got a vaccine from Gideon Carr. And so, I guess the vaccine, like, helped her to not turn. But, like, she had to amputate her left forearm. And so, she becomes, like, a bounty hunter. And then, like, she and, like, that girl Callie from Nicodemus, like, they, like, join forces and, like, fall in love and, like, travel out west. And they're, like, on this 
path to kill Gideon Carr, mainly because Gideon is like trying to get this like vaccine out to everybody. Like before Nicodemus fell, he was like, oh, yes, girl, I have a vaccine. Like we, we got to vaccinate. And so he vaccinated hella people, but like he fucked up the formula. And so hella bitches turned into shamblers because they yeah. like thought they were getting a vaccine. But I guess in book one, like his formula was better. And so that's why like Jane hadn't turned. But also the big thing, too, is that Jane, she got the vaccine, but she wasn't bitten until months later. And so that's usually what you find here. Like, for example, Callie also had a similar situation as in Mr. Redfern, which which we'll get into, where they had gotten the vaccine, time had passed, and then they were bitten. And then they were able to, like, stay immune, basically. Like, they were immune to shamblers. Basically, there's an incubation period for the vaccine. And Gideon didn't realize this. So he was like, all right, you're good. I just vaccinated you. And then they would, like, get bitten in turn. And he was like, huh, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. and. So now Gideon is basically like on this path and like he's been doing this for like a minute. Like he's been trying to like figure out this vaccine, but like he's so impatient that he basically wherever Gideon goes, towns like fall because like bitches turn into shamblers and then it fucks everything up. And so Jane is like, girl, we have to stop Gideon because this is a mess, which I mean, correct. It's a mess. So yes. So basically all of this happens, whatever, whatever. They're all like traveling out West and everyone reconnects in California. So like sue Catherine, jane not callie because callie dumped jane it was kind of sad but there's like jane met this boy named tomas and like they have a dog named sandy or something i don't know whatever it's like random people carolina jones is there jackson also weirdly is there because jackson's like a ghost throughout like all of book two like he dies in like the first part but like is just a ghost and like we'll just show up and like be shady to jane and it's kind of like okay this is really this is so silly so anyway so everyone reconnects in california you know Catherine's really like thrown off because Jane's just like really hardened by her experiences like she's really dead set on like vengeance and like killing Gideon that's like the only thing she cares about and so Catherine's like um yes that matters but like you know friendship and like community and love like I feel like those are also things we can have in our life so basically all of them end up traveling from they start off like right outside of San Francisco and they're going to Sacramento because Sacramento is said to be like, you know, a more thriving place because San Francisco was like had a lot of the same racial issues that they had back in Baltimore and stuff. So they're all traveling to Sacramento and they come to find out that it's mad shamblers like out on the trails yep. because I guess Gideon also was in Sacramento and fucked everything up. <laughs> And so it's OD shamblers. They're like, fuck, bro, it's hella shamblers. So they find this out and they're like, well, that's a mess. And so they're basically like, well, let's go to Haven, which is where Jane's mom is set to live because like, that's also set to be like a better place. And also with like the Rocky Mountains or something, it kind of like this slows place. down the shamblers, yeah. I guess. So, like that was the thing. So the sh- so out west was actually just set to be safer from shamblers just because the, like the way the geography was set up, like it was harder for them to travel versus like in the plains in the Midwest. Like it's like very easy. It's like super right. flat. Like there's nothing stopping them. You know, the, there's the Rocky Mountains in the west. Oh, wait. Let me not. Let me not say that and the Rocky Mountains be in the east. I'm fairly sure the Appalachian Mountains are in the, on the east. Yeah, then, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but Ooh. I didn't know how close the Rocky Mountains were to like Sacramento and stuff. Oh, gotcha. Well, I think it's it's like, so they're in the traveling like through the Midwest. So you have in America, you have like the Great Plains between the two mountains and then the Rocky Mountain right. Range it could be in California, but I think it goes through Colorado and Nevada. Someone's about to come up here and be like, y'all's geography is trash. But, <laughs> trash! <laughs> but it doesn't matter because it, it, the, the idea is that like, okay, that whole area behind the mountains is probably more free from shamblers. Although gotcha. if someone got bit in like, you know, a caravan and rode over the mountains and then was a sham, like that wouldn't help you. But anyway. Right. 
So, yeah. So basically now everyone's like, okay, let's go to Haven. I feel like that'll be better because Sacramento has fallen. San Francisco is yep. about to fall. It's OD Shamblers. I don't know, girl. Getting in somewhere, but whatever. So at this point, <laughs> so just to keep the head count, it's Jane, Catherine, Sue, Carolina Jones, this really irrelevant bitch named Thaddeus Stevens, not Callie because Callie dumped Jane, and also not Ida because Ida went to the lost states, the South, I guess, previously because she was from there and she wanted to like liberate people or something. I don't know. So that's like the current cast of characters. But Mr. Redfern, who was a Nicodemus, like also rolls up out of nowhere and he's like, Jane, we got to kill Gideon. And then Jane's like, bet. And then everyone's like, no, like, no, <laughs> like, don't do that. But then like, Jane's like, fuck it. Like, like this is my mission. I'm good. Fuck. And so Catherine's like, well, girl, if you're going to do this reckless shit, I'm about to go with you because I absolutely do not trust Mr. Redfern because girl, who would? Um, Which honestly, yeah. fair. So the three of them, Catherine, Jane, Mr. Redfern, go to kill Gideon, who's said to be close by to where they were. And while they're going, Mr. Redfern, like, sells them out low-key. So, like, Gideon and his, like, I I don't know, his, like, cronies (laughs) show up and, like, take them to his, like, nearby lab where he's, like, doing shambler things. And, like, basically Jane and Catherine get, like, thrown into this, like, cage, but they, like, manage to escape. But then Catherine gets injected by Gideon, which, with, I think, the vaccine, they didn't really explicitly say what it was. And Jane tries to kill Gideon, but then, like, I don't know, somehow, like, they're struggling and, like, a fire breaks out and Gideon runs out the door. Mr. Redfern goes out the door and then Jane goes out the door. Mind you, Catherine is... Right. And then Catherine's, like, is literally about to die because she's, like, one, just all the energy has been sapped from her from this vaccine. But also, like, the building's on fucking fire and Jane left her (laughs) in the building. And so Jane's, like, outside trying to kill Gideon, but, like, she can't find him. And then she's, like, oh, girl, I got to save Catherine. And so she, like, runs in, gets Catherine, like, takes her out of the building, whatever, whatever. They're on the ground, like, exhausted. And then Gideon rolls up out of nowhere, super convenient, like, like, (laughs) kind of giving you Taraji from Acrimony, just showing up out of nowhere. And you're, like, what the fuck? And then, like, he's, like, Jane, I'm sorry. Like, I know we were in love, but like, it just has to end. And she was like, okay. And then Catherine like killed Gideon, which was Jane's mission. And it was just over. And it was like, well, that's, I guess we're done. And so then Mr. Redfern comes out out of nowhere. And so basically now Catherine, Jane, Mr. Redfern, and not Gideon, because Gideon was killed, (laughs) um, go to this nearby cabin. (laughs) And like Catherine rests for three days. And then the three of them make it to Haven, which everyone else managed to go to. And like Sue like gets married. Jane's mama is there. Also not Aunt Aggie, who was Jane's aunt from the old, from like book one, who like, who like gave her like all these different like, and she gave Jane this like necklace that like, uh, this is really really in the weeds. But basically, like Jane's aunt, who she loves, is not there because she died along the way. Oh no! And so they kind of live this idyllic life for a little bit. Also, Lily's there. Tomas is there. All these basically everyone else, and not Jackson there. as Jackson, and, and, and not Jackson because Jackson was killed, and not Callie because Callie <laughs> dumped Jane. Um, so they all live this like idyllic life for like an episode, and then Jane's like on board slash because Jane. And Mr. Redford, and now maybe Catherine, are, like, immune from shamblers. Like, they kind of want to go out and liberate, like, survivalist towns. So, they, they basically towns like Somerville, where, like, they, like, subjugated people of color, primarily black people, to this kind of bullshit. Like, they want to, like, go and, like, in that. that racial structure. So, like, yeah. they, like, go out on a quest. Although, I'm, like, looking at their journey, and I'm like, wait, where are the rest of these survivalist towns even located? Like, it's Super unclear. Like everything. No one knows. Yeah. No well, one knows. We we don't know. Maybe look at, so. like, that Dragon Ball tracker that Bulma had in Dragon Ball Z, and, like, maybe they, I don't know, they'll figure it out. Girl, maybe. Shit. I mean, honestly, at this point. Um, like, it's a zombie apocalypse. Like, truly anything could happen at this <laughs> point, honestly. <laughs> so, yeah, so the three of them go out on a mission, and that's pretty much how the book ends. Like, they make it to their final destination, but they're like, girl, 
we want action. So we're leaving. Which honestly, I mean, fair. So, yeah. I guess we should take a quick break and then go into our discussion? Or should we just like do the discussion now? Let's do it. Take a quick break and we'll come back. Bet. Okay, we'll see y'all in a bit. That we are. So after that summary, we're going to just like, you know, tell everyone our thoughts and feelings. Yeah. I don't know. Marcy, do you want to start? What did you, what did you think? Yeah. So Deathless Divide was, <laughs> I, I really, really liked it, honestly. Like, Same. I think having Dread Nation come before it, like, like a lot of this sort of like world building explanations and things like that, like, you know, we didn't really have to do all that because we read a whole ass book. So it was kind of like Deathless right. Divide can kind of just like dive more into the characters. One of the features that I loved probably more than anything was that the narration was split. So Dread yes. Nation was entirely narrated from Jane's perspective. And then in, in Deathless Divide, it's split. So it's Jane and Catherine. So every other chapter they alternate and so they both go down the same timeline because they're typically together like they're only really split up for like a couple chapters honestly and so you see so like it's always continuous like it's not like when jane talks about something Catherine goes back to that same experience but like gives it from her perspective like it keeps moving forward but it's like you kind of get to see the extent to which Jane is kind of like an unreliable narrator mm. because it's like Catherine will say shit that like Loki kind of contradicts what Jane said. And honestly, right. just given their temperament, I'm slightly more privy to, be- <laughs> believe, <laughs> to Catherine, believe Catherine's, <laughs> Catherine's perspective a bit more. Because we all know, I mean, even when Jane was narrating in Dread Nation, we knew that she was like, like she could make some like pretty like rash and honestly kind of foolhardy decisions. Like she yeah. would just like jump into shit. But seeing it from Catherine's perspective, you're like, ooh, wow, Jane really just be impulsive than a motherfucker. But right. also, too, like, Catherine is just, like, so layered. Like, she's yeah. just so... Like, we, we can have a whole conversation about Catherine. But that was something that I really, really appreciated about the book. And then on top of that, I felt like... I don't know, like, I liked just, like, how, I guess, in the in the wake of all of this chaos, like, there were, like, still new relationships that were forming. Like, Jane's yeah. relationship with Callie was, like, a huge thing. And, like, at the end, Sue starts to, like, fall in love with this guy named Roy. And there's just, like, all these different examples of, like, love and, like, just, like, closeness between people. And, like, Catherine obviously really, really loves Jane, but not in a way that's, like, sexual or romantic. But she, like, really, really cares yeah. for her. And, like, you know, it's just, and it, it's so beautiful to see that. And, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of violence in the book, but I think it's also made up for, in a way, I guess, by these relationships and honestly i kind of like at the end that they're like you know we're gonna go liberate other people because like we made it to haven but like a lot of people didn't and so right. let's like do what we can especially if we're like immune like we can just kind of do what we can so right. yeah so overall i really, really liked the book i thought it was like a definitely fast moving plot very similar to Dread nation so it was really easy to just kind of like get through it like there wasn't like you know a lot of lag time or like wasted <laughs> scenes like it was very like it like kept going and yeah. so so yeah but those are like just, I guess, my overall thoughts. But what about you, Aka? What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I really like this book, too. I think having the two narrators is really cool because in book one, you saw what Jane thought of Catherine. And Catherine was kind of like a mysterious person who we couldn't really get into their head. Right. We only really knew Jane's perspective, even though kind of in Summersville, when Catherine has to do like all this strategy stuff, you're kind of like, wait, Catherine, like low key, like okay, Catherine, like, you know, she's she's thinking of plans, she's making them happen. So you kind of right. get that thought. I really, really liked her reading the second book just because, mm-hmm. yeah, she has so many layers to her. Oh, yeah. And she loves so deeply. And I think I really like this woman who's asexual 
who loves deeply. I, I think our culture kind of um, prioritizes romantic relationships. The idea mm. of like someone who's not romantic at all, not romantic, but who doesn't have sexual feelings for people at all, kind of seems like okay, well, like what's she feeling then? And she's like, no, I feel things right. all the time, y'all. Like exactly, she, she cares for Jane so much, and more than Jane right. really cares for her and, and and Jane and Jane will be kind of reckless with her feelings towards Catherine to be honest with you. Oh, me, absolutely, yeah. On multiple occasions. And then Catherine and it's not just that she, she just has a different way of seeing the world. So like Jane and Gideon are in all this like boop 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 and like Catherine's like I really don't see how this gets us closer to where we need to be. Like she you know she's like right. her perspective on things is just <laughs> that's not really the point of this situation. And you're like right. I, you know so I really I really really like Catherine in this story. I also, you know, Gideon's kind of <laughs> i feel like the characters are really complex like mr redfern oh, yes. like as which we were like we're like we don't know whose side he's on but like he's watching out for mr redfern and like what can you say you know he didn't go to a school with girls who he can like say actually oh these are people i can rely on he's like i don't i don't right. know y'all from a tree like to be honest with you you know Listen. like so he has his motivations gideon's motivations i mean he's got this i'm gonna save the world complex that's ending up you know, not saving people, but he also right. has reasons, and I don't agree with the reasons, but he has reasons to, that I can right. disagree with, and I really like that complexity from the characters, and I just like that the book is about these underlying racial issues and and these underlying social issues, but it also the characters still have personalities and they still have. Right perspectives and their decisions lead to consequences and, and that kind of stuff i, I really like the nuance of, mm. of the book um without it while it's still kind of just like a fun read and a thriller you know it's it's oh yeah yeah i think that's really impressive and i i know there was like a lot of i remember last year when we read dread nation i was like there's a lot of threads here and i'm like are these gonna get wrapped up and they kind of do at least as much as they yeah. can and then some of it's like stuff let's get not tied up but that's also part of what you know the way the story is written it's like yeah you're not gonna get an answer to that you're not gonna know what happened to baltimore because how would you right. know like it's you're you know so i really mm -hmm. thought the book is a good follow-up to dread nation i think i even like it a bit more than dread nation even though i think oh, i would say that too yeah, yeah you definitely need to read dread nation obviously to get what you right. can, out of this book but yeah i definitely i was impressed yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. And honest and you know, I, I totally agree with, with all of that. And I mean shit, speaking of different threads, I mean Miss Anderson, who completely like atomically sucked in mm. book one. We like barely I think someone mentioned Miss Anderson Miss Anderson in one passing. time. And they were like, Yeah, girl, we don't really know where she is. And that was just <laughs> it. And I was like, But Miss Anderson was so terrible. I'm like, I, right. I just need to know what happened to her. Right. <laughs> With her, like, I mean, who knows? Mustache. Maybe there'll be a book three, <laughs> and she's like, you know, trolling her mustache and being like, ah, you've made it to my dungeon, and it's like, <laughs> bro, you've really been doing this the whole time, bro. Like, are you serious? I'm so, dead. yeah. But honestly, yeah. But speaking of Catherine, though, like, yeah, I, I'm I'm so glad you said that about the asexual piece, because yeah, I do think in our culture it's really easy for, like, especially in media depictions for like people who are aromantic or asexual to be sort of like painted as like like stoic robotic like not emotionally yeah. like in touch like incapable of feeling love and like depictions like this are so beautiful because it's like it's the aggressive opposite like mm -hmm. Catherine just feels so much she's so empathetic she's so just in touch with her emotions yeah. and like it's interesting too because Catherine I mean she does put on this sort of not I won't call it a persona necessarily but like she does try really hard to be 
to kind of have it together, so to speak. Like she, right, you know, people really right. w- would describe her as someone who's very put together, very organized, very like astute, things like that. But Katniss is also extremely anxious. Like she's a very anxious person. And like even, for example, like her corsets, which like seem like a silly detail in book one that like show like wear corsets and like a fight against shamblers. Like for her, that's like a regulative tactic to like keep her anxiety like Down, in check. Yeah. Like it's like, you know, like, just feeling the tight embrace helps her to feel like centered and even just things like that it's like wow like this is like it's just adding more layers to who right. we see you to be like it's like you you're not this like per- like jane al- almost is like yeah like Catherine is just like perfect and lit and like i don't know like she's like like she like is almost jealous of her in a lot of right. ways but then like Catherine is like i mean yes like has a lot of strength to her characteristic and i'm not gonna say that anxiety is not a strength necessarily or that it's like a weakness dare to say but like it's more so like she's human like there's right. aspects to her existence and there's other things that like people just don't see in her personality because right. she, she hides them or she doesn't want them to, to see them or she wants people to, you know, like not ne- like needlessly panic or things like that. Right. It's like, let's like keep it together because like, I feel like in a lot of ways, Catherine does try to keep, like, be like, okay, I know we're running for shamblers, but let's, let's keep it together. Right. Let's not be <laughs> reckless. Not, let's not just fuck around. <laughs> we gotta like stay organized <laughs> if we're going to survive this shit. It's so true. I think it's so, like, yeah. um, I, I agree with you. And, and just to jump off that point, I think it's almost like people have different ways of showing their strength or dealing with difficult situations. And you can see that between mm-hmm. Jane and Catherine. Like Jane is very much like, okay, I'm scared. The situation is wild, but I'm just going to power through. You know, she's very much like, I'm just going right. to break through, fight everything, do what I can. And you can tell that there's an underlying fear there as well, but that's her persona. Oh, yeah. Whereas Catherine's persona is like, I'm also terrified, but my persona is like, okay, let's just have everything be pristine and like set out. And and it's also kind of, it's really interesting because that shows in their weapons that they use too, right? Like Jane has this Ooh. double scythe that like cuts through, you know, it's very much like head on offensive. Whereas Catherine's, is, she's like the best shot at the schools. What's it? Preston's and Miss Preston's. Yeah. It's very deliberate and specific. Like, okay, one mm. shot, two shot, you know? So all of it kind of shows their way of dealing with things, which I thought was cool. No, so. that's real. And even Catherine has those, um, she calls them like her mollies, like her twin swords, which, which I just love that aesthetic. Right. Very much gives me like Lloyd from Tales of Symphonia. Like I'm just like, okay, <laughs> Catherine, yes, God. <laughs> but yeah, just very precise in every yeah. in every way. So yeah, and so the two do definitely complement one another. I mean, it is hard to see Jane be so callous. Like there are a lot of scenes where yeah. Jane will just say like, basically shit akin to like oh like i don't care about you like i don't really give a fuck what happens to you like getting is my bottom line and i don't give a fuck and even at the right. end when like jane left her and came back later to save her right. I, like if i was Catherine, i would have been like pissed don't look at me don't speak to me like yeah. we're like don't ev- don't even girl ugh. Like, i would be like you got me fucked up if you really just ran out this building that was on fire right with me inside of it you really just you really just but she did come back though. I mean, I'm just saying, like, Deep <laughs> I should, I, here's what I'm saying. Like, I, she did remember and come back. Like, I, I think that's the thing. Like, Jane, her emotions are so at the forefront of her mind. You know, they're kind of foils mm. of each other, Catherine and, and Jane. So then for Jane to be like, oh, my motivation to like kill Gideon o- above all else, above like recognizing people that are important to me and losing them that kind of moment of like change is kind of a growth for her right too but yeah i mean that doesn't mean Catherine shouldn't be pissed but it seemed to have worked it out right. so. 
<laughs> exactly. I was about to say, the other thing I wanted to know is there's just a lot of female friendships in this book, which you don't, mm. you think you see it a lot, but then you realize you don't see it a lot. And they're complex friendships. You know, they're not just, yeah, girl power, we're best friends. It's like, we're people and we have different feelings and we're also friends. And you're like, great, awesome. I'm just asking for realistic portrayals of women in books. And you're like, <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's what's it here, just so. <laughs> It sounds so simple, but like, you know, so often it doesn't, it isn't necessarily depicted well. And also, I mean, I like to how it kind of challenges, like, I feel like, for example, in book one, like Jane does kind of have like a, I hate this word, but almost like, sort of like an alpha personality in a sense, like almost like a, oh, like this is like the leader of this group. Like mm-hmm. she's like running shit kind of thing, but like, and in, in, it which, which is challenged. Like, I'm not going to say that like that was never disputed, but like in book two, especially like you see, for example, Jane going down this path where she's like so vengeful and like only cares about like getting to get in. Like she doesn't matter like what, right. ha- like who she has to like run over to get there. And like, it really is like Catherine and Sue and like even like Tomas and like other people who kind of have to like take her out of that. It's like, girl, we are not going to let you just do this with your life like we we are not we cannot do this so it's like i I love that it's like you see it's like the power is like evenly distributed in a lot of ways it's like everyone has their moments everyone has their weaknesses but like they just together are able to navigate it and it's like i love that depiction i love that it's not always like you know laced. i mean there is romance in the book like there is like you know things like that but like i feel like you just see a lot of like just really complicated like yeah and different nuance like yeah just platonic friendships between women i just i live for it and i'm just and like sexuality is also i would say fairly yep. fluid in this book as well so i'm like cute love it here for it and i just yeah it just like the banding together and the camaraderie between people who live at the margins like you see yeah I mean, like most of the cast is black but you just see for example even at the bo- end of book one right well like when they're running off to nicodemus and like half the group is like sex workers and it's just like mm-hmm. there's like a lot of you just see a lot of solidarity between groups that are like like that are marginalized in society for like whatever reason and, which is yeah. like i kind of like this like motley crew sort of aesthetic right but, right yeah yeah it's hard that like it takes a zombie uprising apocalypse to bring people to work together. But the fact that they yeah. are working together is nice. And then it's mm. even even those relationships are complicated. Like everyone, people are working together, but everyone has different motivations. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Jackson and Jane have a moment where they're fighting about something. Like Mr. Redfern's got a moment where he's fighting about something. Gideon, everyone has, it's not just right. like, oh, we're we're all can work together. It's like, even in, in a situation like this, people still have their own motivations. Exactly. It, 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 everyone's, I'm everyone's really human in the story, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, sometimes yeah. you read a book and you're like, all right, these are just characters, but exactly. Yeah. So. And even, I mean, speaking of, well, I have just two quick points, but sure. <laughs> even, even speaking of Gideon, I thought that like moral dilemma that he was kind of going through of like, because basically Gideon's whole thing was like, you know, he knew that he was turning people into shamblers, but in his mind it was kind of like, oh, well, like, it's like a short-term investment for like a long-term gain. Like, it's like, I might turn a lot of people into shamblers, but if we can figure out this vaccine, this is going to save everybody. Right. This is going to put a stop to everything. And it's like, you see that logic and, and like, as a reader, you're obviously like, bro, like, this is not the way to do this. But you kind of can understand right. why he would have came to that conclusion. Like, it's not just completely out of nowhere so yeah that complexity i think is really interesting and also just <laughs> so jackson like i mentioned becomes like a ghost in book two and funny enough as if we were like kind of talking about this book i yes jackson is a ghost but jackson isn't really that different from book one i feel like it was That's actually true. kind of inter- it was actually kind of a good literary decision to make him a ghost because it's like like jackson would just kind of like disappear and just reappear randomly in like in book, book one. one like he just was like just all over the place and just like would just 
like was very much like a Jack in the Box kind of character. Like, um, like, Jack, like Jackson was just, was just, <laughs> and we we joked about him like teleporting right. in our episode with Curtis. Like he would just like show up at the most convenient times, <laughs> and that's like exactly what he does. Like it actually doesn't even matter that he's a ghost because it's like he does the same shit, and it's, it's like his personality stays the same. He's always in these like really dapper outfits. Like Mama is like dressed to the nines, and that's I'm just true. like Jackson. Like you were comfortable in the afterlife. Like you are not. <laughs> you were really not pressed at all. <laughs> Jane is literally running for her life, and you're just like, oh, Jane, girl, run, oh, girl, you gotta run faster, bitch. Like, oh, this, them shambles on your tail, girl. And it's like, Jackson, we really don't need this. Like, you're being, like, honestly, like, but, like, so on brand. Like, I'm like, you were li- just on, so on brand. Oh, my God. I just, so yeah, I, I feel like it's been a, a while since I've read books that have, like, had, like, had me caring about characters, like, this many characters at the same yeah, time. Like, I yeah. feel like it's more typical that I'm like, okay, like, these couple characters I really fuck with, but, like, really looking at the entire cast, I'm like, this is, like, a really solid yeah, group. group. And yeah. I just, like, like seeing them interact with each other. So. Same. And I'd, I'd actually yeah. like to see, like, a trilogy. I, I could I could watch a trilogy on this. Honestly, you know? I fuck with it, too. Just because it's kind of badass. I, I don't know. I think it would be a, it'd be a dope movie. So... Even if it ended just with two movies, I, we could do a third one, you know, where they're liberating people. Right. That'd be dope. And then maybe they like flash forward to like 2020, 2021, and we have like a whole different timeline where like, mm. so since there was zombie, it was like racial inequality ended in like 1858. And like, we now live in the future and there's hover cars. I don't know. I'm hopeful. Right. <laughs> exactly exactly i would fuck with it i would i would buy tickets shit i would read a third book so yeah yeah same so you know just you know we justina the listeners um they're hungry uh they would love more (laughs) if you were willing to put that out Uh, i was not going to volunteer your labor because what the fuck so So, speaking of justina yes though come on transitions look at that boom so i think actually now we're going to transition into our interview with her along with curtis from i found this great book but quickly before we do that we just wanted to mention that so curtis has really just been like fucking up the whole like online like Absolutely. literary game. Like his website. So he has a podcast called I Found This Great Book, but he also has a website by the same name, I found this great book.com. And it has like all these different resources, like links to audiobooks and yep. like but one of the biggest resources is that he has um a directory of black mystery authors. So if that's like a thing you're trying to get into, right. like there's information on each of the authors. The website is gorgeous it's gorgeous like guys. it's so well organized well it's so well yep. put together so also, absolutely check that out it's not just black mystery authors either he has book recommendations he has audiobook recommendations so you know if you want interviews interviews right beautiful mm-hmm. like pictures and, and profiles with the authors so if you are like man i love listening to podcasts but i wish like i could read a book at the same time you can just listen to an audiobook like he has a whole directory of those too so yeah you can also follow him on twitter at found a great book yeah mm-hmm. just and he i mean he's so kind and awesome so definitely check him out he's just he's great. yeah absolutely like he, he he's great and like has helped us so much both on and off the mic and he's just true yeah, so we cannot recommend curtis enough he is everything check him out he's so lit and yeah, I think now we can transition into the interview. Welcome, everyone. We are here with the great, the one and only Justina Ireland, who is a fantastic author. We've all been fans. I'm super excited because not only am I getting to talk to a great author, by the way, I'm Curtis, <laughs> great <laughs> author, I'm getting to talk, share this moment with 
two fantastic podcasters. Oh my God. Marcy oh my God. and Akko. And <laughs> no further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Akko. Akko, why don't you start us off with a great question for our fabulous guest? Yes. Okay. So as everyone knows, I usually start off with a question. So since just, you know, this book has a lot of characters with different motivations, you know, some of them are heroes, some of them are anti-heroes. I was thinking if you, or this kind of goes to everyone, of course, but if you Mm. were a character in a speculative fiction novel, it could be like Dread Nation, it could not be, would you write yourself as a hero or an anti-hero and why? Oh my God. I'm so glad you asked that because this is literally (laughs) how I live my life every day. Like, would I rather be a unicorn or a dragon? Would I rather be? I spent a a lot of my time in very deep, serious thought, as you can tell. Um, But (laughs) I would want to be an anti-hero. And here's the reason why. It's the Thor versus Loki problem, right? Mm -hmm. Thor is so goddamn boring without Loki. It's Loki who makes, like, the story interesting, right? Loki who, like, because of those interesting plot moments. Like, I don't know if you guys saw, like, the second Thor movie, right? But that... Oh, it's so damn boring. Like, it's... Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, I missed out. Okay, never mind. No, you you missed nothing. And, like, not not even the romance can make Thor interesting. He's, like... Like, the first movie is funny because Thor comes into, you know, to a world that he has no, no familiarity with. But like the second movie, he's just like plodding through the story. And you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, like, please stop. And then that third movie is Bananas Awesome because you have way more Loki. Like, they, uh-huh. yeah, you like they don't even try to like hide Loki until like the end as like the surprise villain or whatever. And so like, I just feel like whenever you think of like somebody who's like a true hero, they're so damn boring. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, think about like Captain America. Right? Like, the only thing that makes him interesting is his romance with Bucky. Like, that's what makes him interesting. Oh, right. Interesting. That that love story is really what everyone's watching for. Otherwise, he's just kind of like a boring character. Just like, okay, we get it. He's good. Um, But an anti-hero is so much more interesting because you don't know what they're going to do. Right? You Mm -hmm. put him in a situation like, are they going to show up and help? Or are they going to betray everyone at the last moment? And, like, that's why I like anti-heroes better, I think. Mm. That's actually really interesting that you say that because even like when you think of like the conventional hero, like they're only made interesting by the villains. Like the villains are the one who like gives them like a plot. Whereas like an anti-hero, yeah, like like working against a force can help, but also like them by themselves, like yeah, they they typically seem a lot more interesting and like you know a lot more unpredictable. Right, like half the half of Black Panther, you're just sitting there cheering for Killmonger. You're like, well, he has some yeah. good points. <laughs> like, I was honestly taking notes in the theater. I was like, I mean, I can't even I, fully be mad. Like, I can't even part my lips to disagree I was, with. Right. I was like, okay, but but he's not wrong, right? Right. <laughs> like, we all low-key agree, right? <laughs> like, Where he's coming from. It's like a little awkward, right? You're like, right. yeah. But yeah but like, that's, that's, that's true. That's the problem with heroes. Like, they have to have a great villain. And, like, exactly. an anti-hero doesn't need anything but, like, their life. Like, think about Deadpool, right? Like, even before the hero uh, show up in Deadpool, you're like, what is happening? This is awesome. That man has a sword. And so, like, it's just like, it's just like one of those things, like, anti-heroes are just, and they're honestly, they're so much more fun to write. Like, writing, like, somebody who always makes the good decision, who's always the, the good guy, can get a little stale. And I just think, I would want to be an anti-hero. That's, ooh. ooh. That's a good answer. That's yeah. a good answer. 
Honestly, I agree. Like, I know <laughs> I could ask me that question, but I'm going to just put in my two cents, like my two pennies and be like, yeah, honestly, I think <laughs> I would do the same for me, honestly, as well. I'm dead. Curtis, what about you? Uh, the anti-hero, because I think... <laughs> wow. Like, you really so Like <laughs> No, because, you know, I mean, it's great to think of yourself as being a hero, but they get a little self-righteous. You know? Oh, oh yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. But the anti-hero, I mean, you don't, it doesn't mean you have to just go around, you know, killing puppies or nothing. I mean, it, it, it means you're, you're <laughs> no just that person that. that people don't like, you know, that, that you're going against the uh, the grain. And I guess, and also, I think anti-heroes, it depends on who's writing the history. Oh, fair. That's yeah. true. What is their reasoning, you know? Yeah, who's talking about it says, well, no, this they were a bad person. It's like, yeah, really, you know, you... You were a dictator and they just fought against you, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Well, I'm going to be contrarian and say that yeah. I would be the hero. And here's why. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the hero has this code they have to follow. Right. And it's that tension that makes, I feel like, an underlying story. So like Superman knows that he could just step on, you know, the sidewalk and like put a dent through the city. You know, he could very easily be evil if he doesn't follow his code and he struggles with that. And Batman knows that he really should just be putting all his money into like the education system. But if he's going to be a billionaire, (laughs) (laughs) good guys are (laughs) fighting crime. He can't kill anyone because he's so close to the line of being a villain. And I think that restraint that, oh my God, I could easily be a villain if I don't watch myself. That like need to sort and Captain America too, like I'm the super soldier. Like I could really do anything. I could trick people, which you kind of see in them. I think it's Captain America. I think it's um one of the ones where it finds out that Hydra actually invaded like America. It's like he has to follow the right answer. He has to find justice. And and that tension in a world that's so unjust where there's such a blur, I feel like creates a story, you know, something to hold yeah. on to. So Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> okay. I like that. I, I can respect I like that, too. that. I like that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I, I, I didn't I didn't turn everyone anyone over to the hero side, but uh, okay. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But we admire you for being a hero. <laughs> right, we're like, yeah, like, but like also we need, you know, I guess we need both, like, you know, balance, equilibrium. So I'm here for it. Thank you, Akko. Just, you know, <laughs> dropping in something different. But Justina, to, I guess, transition a little bit into our formal interview, something that Akko and I love to ask the authors that we talk to is just about their writing process and just sort of like how they came to identify as a writer and things like that. So we'd love to just hear about like, you know, what has your journey as a writer like looked like? through time oh i mean time is a construct so i mean like let's do it (laughs) i'm like trying to think like where do i start i'm actually not one of those people who was like i knew i wanted to be a writer at age five and here's like the cute short story Mm -hmm. i wrote for my mom (laughs) i mean like i'm not like i think it's one of those like writers lie a lot we like to write our own fictions about ourselves and like like make things look like much cooler than they are and the reality is I mostly started writing because I hated the books I was reading, oh. um, which is like the, most, like the biggest, <laughs> the biggest ego, like self kind of the back. Like I can do a better job than this. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a, like a short story in seventh grade because there was like, um, it was dare week, which are like, take it back. It's the nineties. Right. right. Um, drugs. <laughs> did, did you want to yeah. do drugs there? Yeah. Like, ah. drugs. And I wrote this like really schmaltzy, like, short story about a kid and his friend and his 
his friend gets hooked on drugs and gets killed and he's sad because his friend mm-hmm. died because of drugs. Like it was like it was just like checking all like the blocks of like the stuff you're fed when the police right. comes to your classroom like once a week and tells mm-hmm. you how bad drugs are. Right. Um, and so like <laughs> I like won like first place and I got like this fifty dollar gift card for like a bookstore and I was like so excited. Mm-hmm. I loved reading. Uh-huh. But like, I didn't think like writing books was a thing like to be honest, black people did. Like I just thought like mm-hmm. that was something that old white guys did. <laughs> like, okay. Like, mm-hmm. All okay. the books I read, like you look at the back page and it's like, there's Dean Koontz, there's Stephen King, there's like like whoever I was reading at the time. It was like always like this grainy black and white photo of some white dude. And mm-hmm. so I was always like, oh yeah, I, I wrote this short story, but like that's not a thing people do, right? Like this, like it's like you know, like like people don't become Batman. I mean, like rich white guys become Batman, right? right but like, right. But like average people don't become Batman. And so I didn't write for a really long time, and then I was in my late twenties, and I had finished like all my schooling, and I had done like was in the middle of a master's degree for history, mm-hmm. and got pregnant, married. I was married, and I got pregnant, and the like this moment where I was like carrying around another human being in your body is (laughs) pretty awful Um, like if you've never done it I like you can try it I don't recommend it um like like a Yelp review (laughs) (laughs) the end result was fine but the process was uh, was you know laborious um but Mm -hmm. like I got to the end of like my pregnancy and I was like what am I gonna do with my life because like like I'm gonna have a kid and I didn't want to just like be mom because I had friends who had like lost their identity in having children like they just had be like they ceased to exist and all they were was like Timmy's mom right like you're mm-hmm. no you're in a book and you're like the mom never has a name like she's right. just always like Timmy's mom or like you know Ruthie's mom you're like does this woman have a name like is she <laughs> alive? like she had her own shit going on she's and actually right. just like a floating hand she's with cookies a floating hand with the yeah <laughs> <laughs> the 80s right right <laughs> that image is very good um but like, <laughs> like so like I was just kind of like what am I gonna do and I'm like I'm gonna write a book because that's how one decides to write a book in my world and so I wrote a book and it was awful it was so bad oh my god um, oh my god and then I wrote another book and it was still pretty bad, but it was less bad. And then I wrote a third book and that's my first book that was published, Vengeance Bound. But my second book I wrote um, had a black main character. She's biracial. And I kept getting these rejections, like the people couldn't connect with the character. One rejection I got was like, this seems a little racist because at one point she's talking about her dad being dark skinned. And so the person who was reading it thought that was racist, that she would talk about how her dad's really dark and she's not. And I'm like, mm. that's talk about skin color like we talk about like oh yeah he's really dark skin like or like oh no yeah he's light skin he's gonna get a sunburn like you know that kind of thing right Right. and so like I was really like bummed because I was like I finally figured out like how to write a book and it looked like those childhood fears were gonna be true that you know black people don't get published Mm -hmm. and so I wrote a book with all white people like the book I was working on I was about halfway through it I was like screw it I'm gonna make it all white people and I sold that book at auction and like and if you don't know about auction that's when like more than one person wants to buy the book and that's like the writer dream is like everybody wants your book and i was just like god damn it (laughs) (laughs) that actually is infuriating yeah yeah and so like i was just kind of like well the next book i wrote like was a black man character and like ever every book i've written since it's been my own stuff it's been a black man character because after that moment i was just like I just remember I like after my second book came out i went and did like a school visit like when you go to like a school and you talk to kids about your book and hope that they want to read a book or any book 
Door <laughs> just a book girl <laughs> People, they remember what they are like. so, so yeah and like one girl was like raise her hand she's like miss i don't mean to be respectful she's like but why is there a white girl on your cover and i was like oh I just, I <laughs> and it was just like it was like a such a like an awful moment that i was like okay that's not my journey i'm not gonna be like i always call it like two waging into publishing either like <laughs> the Nicki Minaj method or like the Beyonce method. And so like the Beyonce method is when you come in and you're like singing Bill's Bill's with Destiny's Child and like Karen's in the supermarket dancing along and she's really excited for a good time. Yeah. And then you drop formation on them and they're like, what happened? What happened? Right. <laughs> <laughs> white people now. We were single ladies together. Right. Um, so like then it's like, yeah, the Nicki Minaj where Nicki came out of the gate like hard. Like she wasn't like playing around at, at, mm. at all. She was. And so, like, I think about that a lot because, like, I would definitely say my publishing career was the Beyonce method where I came in with something that I thought the industry wanted. And then I was like, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. Whereas other authors have come in just really writing what they wanted to write and then just waited for that timing to be right. So, yeah, it's like, I mean, like, my journey, I don't think is any different than most authors. It's just there's a lot of there's this idea that everyone said, if you haven't written a book by the time you're 20, then, like, kiss it goodbye. You're never going to get it. And I'm like, yeah, man, like, my first book was published. I was like 31, 32. So like, I mean, like, it's, it's like never too late to start writing. It's like, as long as you can sit down and write a book, like you can write a book. So mm. I love that. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, good I, to hear. I read, I read Vengeance Bound and it, it was a good book. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed what you did there and with the, thanks. I appreciate taking that. that retelling <laughs> that story and moving into the modern age. So yeah, yeah. no, I, it's like one of those books people are like, oh, Generation's your first book, right? And you're like, no, head down, shoulder slumped. Like, I'm like, <laughs> Like I had other, this is just the first one you've heard of but yeah <laughs> got you got you i was gonna say um it's nice to hear someone be like you know you don't have to be a, a kid genius to write a book like you don't have to like at the age yeah. of 22 have finished your novel or else Ugh. it's too late for you just because I, I when you're young you kind of think your life ends at 25 and you're <laughs> like, that's the precipice so right. to be like no, no you can wait is it's i think our readers are really gonna appreciate that but 25 is great that's when you get your cheap insurance your, insurance, your car insurance yeah, rates yeah. Down, right rent a car. <laughs> nobody asks about for your ID at the hotel so like <laughs> Uh, no, I like I I do think it's one of those things, and I think publishing makes it harder, as in a lot of ways as well, because there's always like the thirty under thirty like authors who've like got their shit together, and like man, I spent my twenties like being a mess, like there was no way I was yeah. gonna write my twenties, right? <laughs> like I got married really young, but like I still went out, like we went out all the time, like and had fun, and like cut up at the club, and like we did all that kind hey. of like <laughs> that you expect people to do in your twenties, right? Like, like right. you don't be home writing a book if that's what you want to do and you have that drive that's great but like you can also and I personally sometimes think books are better from people who have gone out and lived their life like you can tell sometimes when a writer has like had a very sheltered existence because then you read things and you're like I remember so flashback I went to a writing retreat once and there was this woman who was writing this story and it was supposed to be about these black kids in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I was like, of course, the only black people person at this retreat in this room. And she mm-hmm. starts reading this story. And it's literally like every checkmarked box about black kids that you can think of. Like oh playing in a vac- an empty lot because they don't have a playground in their neighborhood. All they want is to have a bike because they're not allowed to have, they they've never had anything so nice as like their own bike. They're drinking fruit punch and eating like cheese puffs and like the oh their comment about the orange cheese and like look fruit punch and cheese puffs are delicious listen yeah. right <laughs> i was about to say 
<laughs> right. So, and at the end of this way, he does this reading, everyone's clapping. They're like, oh, it was so emotional, so great. And I was like, where are you from? And she's like, Maine. And I was like, see? <laughs> see? <laughs> see, see. I was like, do you live in D.C.? Have you been to D.C.? Because I can tell you there ain't a lot of vacant, like abandoned lots. In right. That's parts. true. Mm-hmm. Real estate's expensive. Like people like that vacant lot would be like a million dollar property. And I guarantee you someone's probably building something there. Right. Like yeah, just, Exactly. Yeah. She's like, yeah. like, who, like, what is this? So like, I do think it's sometimes you don't have that wisdom until you get older. And I like, I hate that whole thing. It's like, wait till you get older, you'll be wiser. But like, no, sometimes it's just like, you got to live through some shit before you realize like, mm-hmm. maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not mm-hmm. my So. Hey, yeah. hey jump in real quick. I want to follow up on what you just said. So how does it work for a writer? There's a person who's an observer of life and a person who's lived life. How do you balance those two as a writer? I think you have to do both. Honestly, I don't think you can do one or the other. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think, especially when you're talking things like, like emotional arcs in a story, you can best describe those feelings that you've experienced. Right? This is why I think a lot of times when you read a book about like racism from a white writer and they're talking about how racism affects uh, like a black character i always find it rings a little hollow and sometimes if Mm -hmm. i'm reading a book i don't know um the race of the author i will look to the back and see like okay who is this person because one of those things the things about racism and microaggressions is like it's one of those things that you experience on the regular so it Mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily unless you live in some like magical utopia which um i'm not sure where you live that would be great Right. Trying to find it. Zip code is let me know. Wakanda? Are we looking for Wakanda right now? (laughs) Right. Wakanda. There's no racism in Wakanda. But yeah, but like, so unless you like, there's always, it's one of those things. Like, so one of the things, like, um, my husband is white. And when we first got married, one of the things I had to explain to him is like, when racist shit is happening, you will always second guess it. Right. Because you're always going to be the person. We're taught, like, we're so gaslit to be like, no, it's not really racism. You're just being overly sensitive. No, it's right. not racism. They're just having a bad day. No, it's not racism. You know, those people actually did show up to the restaurant before you. You just didn't notice them standing over there. So, like, mm. I mean, like these, you always have these like counter. There's always this voice in your head. So, like, when like when racist things happen, and somebody's like, "It was racism," and they were gonna go be mad, and I was like, "No," because the first thing you you do is you weigh those consequences. Like, mm-hmm. if you speak right. up, what's gonna happen? Like, what's the worst thing that could happen right now if I speak about this? Are they going to be apologetic and pretend like it didn't happen and we can carry on with our day? Are we going to get into, like, a screaming match and then I'm going to be, like, a video on YouTube? Like, mm-hmm. what's going to happen? And so, like, like, I do feel like sometimes you have to live through some of those moments to appreciate them. Now, I obviously don't recommend going out and killing a man. So you can... <laughs> but, like, it, it is, I think, to talk. And if you, and if you don't live through those moments you have to be able to talk to people who have and that's mm. also something like living life is to be able to go out and talk to people so mm. being a writer is surprisingly easy and surprisingly difficult all at the same time interesting yeah oh, that. thank you wow i as someone who has gotten into sort of like this space both like reading more books and also like exploring writing more you know later in life like i'm 27 this is really nice to hear it's like really nice to hear this like just other narratives that can you know empower people to get into this even you know regardless of where they started so thank you for yeah that. i think no no good i'm good you should be writing you should be writing if you have that itch if you feel that calling you should answer mm-hmm. i guess yeah. i don't think it's something Ooh. that has to be saved for like 
16 year olds <laughs> like that Kalini right. writing Aragon or whatever. Like, I think like you can like, oh, yeah. yeah, remember that was like, that was his big story. Like when he published that book. Yeah. He was 16 like, years old. 16. Did he, mm. he ever finish that series? I don't know. He has a new one coming out this year. <laughs> oh, <fair. laughs> um, but speaking of world building and fantasy novels and other novels, Oh, look at that transition. We also, one day I'll stop pointing them out. That's when I really would have evolved. But anyway, but um, I kind of, because Dread Nation is, you know, this speculative fiction book that has elements of fantasy, but also, you know, historical, it's a historical novel. How did you kind of start building that world? What made you, what inspired you? I know you just talked about, you know, masters in history. Yeah, um, so I didn't finish that master's in history, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Turns out when you have a child, there's a lot of work involved. Um, But I I did eventually go and get like a a master's in creative writing. So I did end up finishing, as my husband says, he's like, thank God you finished something. I'm like, look at all my books. Um, So like when I was doing my master's in history, I was really interested in educational systems. And I was really interested in educational systems because they've historically been used to erase marginalized identities and force them into conforming with the mainstream, which is usually white heterosexual male ideologies, right? And so European-based. And so I was really interested in in how during Reconstruction, when it was, I think it was General Armstrong was responsible for the education of the freedmen. And one of the things they did is they were like, well, we have this model, it was called the Hampton model. And it was the idea of this educational model was, you can't teach black people things like math, because they're just Uh, dumb. So we're going to teach down to them and make sure that they're suitable for careers we think they'll be great for, like janitorial services and stuff like that. Mm. And if you've ever read that famous story about Booker T. Washington, when he went to go to Hampton Institute, um, which is now Hampton College, his requirement to get into school was like to sweep the floor. And like, if he could sweep the floor real good, then he could be enrolled. And that was kind of, you know, that was what W.E.B. Du Bois and a lot of other like men of the era, like the, what they call them, like the race men is what they used to call them, um, mm-hmm. were kind of fighting against because they were like this idea of like, you need to teach down to us. Like, you don't have to teach down to us. Like, we are men, we are human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, we can We can learn stuff. We can learn more than just like how to plant a garden or like be a blacksmith. Like we can like learn like math mm-hmm. and English and law and these sorts of like, like higher level things. And so I was really interested in that, that model and how like, we don't talk about those fights about how education should have, should look that happened at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s. And then we don't talk, definitely don't talk about how it overlaps with other marginalized groups. You know, how do we American and Americanize immigrants, right? How did we make them give them the idea of what America looks like? Because mm-hmm. don't think about it is like education's indoctrination, right? It's really, especially free education, especially state sponsored education, is really about trying to get people to think in a specific way. And right now, that specific way is how do I best suit you for the workforce where you have an eight thirty to five p.m. job with a thirty minute lunch and two fifteen minute breaks? Like, how do I get you mm-hmm. that model? And like how we get used to that model is like, you know, we put you in a classroom and we make you sit. And if you can't sit still, then we like send home like an IEP with your parents and say, your kid can't sit still. That's a problem. And like, Mm -hmm. we did like all these different things. Right. And so like, I was really interested in that. Um, I started working on my thesis about like the educational system in the late 1800s and how, how people took education to try to 
kind of Americanizing very different groups, including black people. And then, of course, I put my master's. So I had all this educational like research I had done, all these like papers and like, you know, arguments. Like, cause it used to be in the old days, which was kind of cool. It was like, if you didn't like someone, you, you wrote like an op ed in the paper and called them out. Right. Cause we didn't oh. have Twitter. Yeah. So like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you would have like, like, this man in the South who thinks he knows something is really an idiot. And let me list the reasons why. But like, every <laughs> language, right? Like, that's what Hamilton was actually known for in like in his time era, in his oh. era. It was, big long pieces in the newspaper like to basically call like Burr or Hamill or Jefferson or somebody like a scumbag or Madison and so, you know, he was just really like the the art of like the <laughs> the takedown <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so he was a troll before we had trolls or? he was the first troll the OG <laughs> troll um oh god <laughs> and like my whole thing about is like about stories is they have to have a kernel of truth and whenever you start to build your story, there has to be something that's true about them. That's something true that you're talking about that people will say, yes, I recognize this. I get this. I understand this. And so mm-hmm. the biggest thing I think we all know, and especially since having the first black president, is like there was a missed moment in time. There was a missed moment in the late 1800s where Reconstruction was working. We had black men, because women still couldn't vote, mind you, black men being elected to the Senate and House of Representatives. We had you know black lawyers. We had you know, this, these well-educated black people, we had um, black people who had not been educated, who had been enslaved, now were free and, and pursuing education, pursuing jobs, moving around. And that all came to a crashing halt when they ended Reconstruction early because mm-hmm. Brother mm-hmm. Fruity Hayes. And so I kept thinking about that missed moment, but I also like zombies. It's <laughs> 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 because you can make zombies about anything you want to, right? Zombies are never really about zombies because then mm-hmm. that... It's always about some other like big societal com- conversation you want to have. And the mm. zombies are just like the metaphor that extended for it. So like in, I've watched so many zombie movies. So like, for example, the first Resident Evil movie, not the game, but the movie is mm. literally about what happens when corporations start testing beyond, without limit, right? With no regulation. Mm. I'm so powerful yeah. and so money. And then after that, it just becomes about Mila Jovovich being sexy and hot. I mean, I... Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, look how hot she is when she kills zombies i'm like i get this but where's the bigger message um <laughs> but like so like like but like if you think about even the walking dead and not necessarily the walking dead the tv show but the graphic novels the graphic novels are really about the things that make us the same and the things that make us different and how we get mm. those in order to work together right that's really what those mm-hmm. graphic novels are about i mean there's a, there's a specific reason it takes place in georgia right <laughs> like right that first arc right and and he's a sheriff is trying to work with like this you know this black man and his son right like it's like it's very there's like it's just like this huge extended metaphor there and Mm so one of the things i want to talk about and i always want to talk about whether people want to or not (laughs) is legacy (laughs) of slavery because we have so much in this country that came on the backs of enslaved africans and we don't think about it like if you go to the White House, there is nothing at the White House to say this building was built by enslaved Africans, right? There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing if you go to Harvard that says this school was built by enslaved Africans. There's nothing that if you go anywhere in this in the East Coast to say how many people died here on the Middle Passage. Like nothing, none of that mm-hmm. exists. Completely erased the fact that our economy and in our current way of living, maybe not current way of living, but like our when our economy is doing well. It's based on legacy wealth that was built during slavery. Mm. And I things like like zombies are a great metaphor for like that impact of slavery because we keep pretending like 
we can just get over it. But it still matters. Like the way our laws are written, the way our education system is run, the way um, our prison system is run, like Oof. everything goes back. Yeah. Was, you know, and the idea and the entitlement to black bodies. Because mm-hmm. like, I, like, especially like, I don't know if you guys saw like just a couple of days on Twitter was trending, Africa's not your, Africans are not lab rats. Yeah. Because apparently somebody was like, we can test these COVID-19 yeah. teens in Africa. And Africans are like, wait, hold up. Oh, we're wow. not sick. Like, we're right. Like, why would you come here? And it's like, yes, because we have this idea that there's still that, like, that European white entitlement to black bodies. And I think that's like, we have to talk about that stuff. Because if we don't, we're just going to keep repeating those same terrible, awful mistakes. I mean, I think when you're going to build your fantasy world, you have to think of something that's true. You have to think of that kernel of, and it's usually the kernel of truth of the thing that I think it's like a piece of sand, right? It's like a, it's like that Mm -hmm. annoyance thing, that thing that, that like, if you leave it unacknowledged it starts to irritate and i really do think Mm -hmm. the legacy of slavery and racism and colorism and like how sexism ties into all that and Mm -hmm. how don't we just don't address that we just pretend like if we're nice to each other things will be better (laughs) Mm -hmm. the amount of times i've heard that (laughs) oh my gosh and and i'm kind of sorry akko you were gonna say something no i was just in awe Continue. Okay. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, I, I too am in awe. And I also wanted to to ask just, I guess, specifically with Deathless Divide, like, I guess, how did that world building shift? Because I kind of, I read it, um, I forgot the name of the section, but I, I remember reading, like, after the book ended, like, sort of a piece that you had written about how you kind of wanted to explore, like, Black people in, like, Westerns and, like, yeah. how that kind of, like, played a role in, in Deathless Divide. But I'm, I'm curious, yeah, just to hear more about, like, how the world building, like, shifted for the sequel. So when I wrote the first book, I was really only interested in kind of looking at the trajectory of Black Americans after the Civil War. And so what did Black Americans do after the Civil War? They did mostly what everybody else did. They, mm-hmm. you know, ed- got some education and they moved West because everybody was moving West at that time period for mm. better and so I really wanted to just encapsulate that. But then after Dread Nation, when I was trying to figure out like where I wanted to write the second book, I really wanted to take it further west because I also wanted to show those moving pieces between ethnic groups. Because I think we have an mm-hmm. idea that it's like all the POC are here and all the white people are on the other side. They're against us and we're against them. But there's also that friction between ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody who's lived in like a predominantly black neighborhood where you have a grocery store that's owned by like a Korean family has seen that friction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen it like that was a huge thing at the end of during the um, Rodney that, King riots, right? Yeah. They went and burned everyone. Everyone was angry, but what they were mostly angry at were like Korean people who they saw was like getting rich off of them. And so like, I think like we have to talk about that friction. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of anti-blackness in Asian communities. There's a lot of anti-blackness in native communities. There's a lot of anti-blackness in, in Latino communities. And in, in black communities, there's a lot of, you know, anti-Asian sentiment because of that anti-blackness. There's a lot of anti-Latino sentiment. Like you like, it all comes back around. Right. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's fine, but white people are still okay. (laughs) (laughs) And right. we're with each other. Meanwhile, like in the ivory tower, white people are rich. And so like, I feel like you see that too. I mean, you see that, especially with even like with poor white people who will vote against their own best interests in the name of racism. And it's like, right. that's fine, but you're not getting ahead. And so I wanted to talk about like the old West was kind of like the perfect landscape for that because, you know, the Buffalo soldiers primary purpose were to like 
do the same work the army did, which at that time was clearing native people off the land so that other homesteaders could come in and, and settle it. If you dig into Oklahoma, which, you know, was quote, used to be like called Indian territory. And then they may, um, the federal government came in and said, okay, you have to divvy up this land because oil was discovered. <laughs> and then they came in and bought all the oil routes, right? right. I know it's right. <laughs> History's so awful. Um, but one of the things that like you see at the time period is that there were people who were formerly enslaved by native tribes. So you saw like black people who like had land and like had land ownership and then sold that land, you know, for oil rights and stuff. And like, that's part of that story of the West. And I think the story of the West tends to be like homogenized and flattened, like most of our storytelling, so that it's like a white dude steering to the distance with his rifle and his horse, and, and, <laughs> you know, bags, and like the little woman who owns the ranch that he loves, but he can't be with her because her husband has a husband or whatever. And I'm like, that's not like really how the West was. Like the West was messy and gross, and, and there were a lot of people there. There were Chinese people, there were smaller, you know, population of Japanese people. There were Mexican people, there were Californios, which is what we used to call the people who lived in California before we decided it was part of the United States, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, like there was all these different yeah. groups, and, like, they didn't like each other, <laughs> like, right? <laughs> You're still fighting over the same resources, and, like, it's not going to be any better when there's zombies, right? Because zombies, like, might bring out the better in people, but it also might bring out the worst. And I think that's one of the things that's so scary about writing, like, a book that takes place in, like, an apocalyptic landscape is right now in the pandemic, we've already seen that, right? We've seen the people who are awesome and the healthcare workers who are going to work without masks and are like, and like maybe, maybe not the proper protection. And then we saw the dude who bought like the 15,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To come on, mm. Right? And, and so he like, wasn't sorry about it at all. He was not. <laughs> New York Times wrote about it, right? No remorse. And it was just, and it's just like, and I think that's the thing. It's like, that's why people find world building so hard is because you have to realize that it's life. And you just have to take something you know to be true and like build your world around it. And what mm. I know to be true is like, if things are going to go down and you can blame someone who's black, it probably will happen that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. President's still blaming Obama for stuff. <laughs> Which is wild. <laughs> right. Which yeah. Crazy, right. A man has not been in office for three years. <laughs> right. I'm looking at my calendar. I'm like, wait, did we go back in time? Because I really hope we had. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't be mad. I wouldn't be mad about 2015. 2015, just, you know, would, would have had a much better outlook on life. But mm. yeah, like, I do think it's like, world building is so hard. And I think one of those things I always tell my students, because I teach creative writing, is when you're building your world, you have to ask yourself like three main questions. The first question is, what does everyone know to be true? What everyone knows to be true is not necessarily things are actually true. It's just that what everyone tells themselves is true, right? So mm-hmm. we tell ourselves in this country, if you get a good job and you buy a house and you work someplace, that's the way to happiness, right? Happiness uh-huh. is a house with a yard and a dog and, and you're like 2.3 kids or whatever. And like, mm-hmm. that's not true, but that's what we know to be true, right? That's what we I'm hold sorry. to be true. 2.3 isn't even 2.5. Right. <laughs> I feel like it's gone down because I feel like there's more people having less kids now. That's we'll see. true. <laughs> Come on, point three of a child. <laughs> yeah, not even two point half. Uh, but yeah, but then, so like, and then like you think about like, you know, what do people know to be true? What is actually the truth, right? What does the truth really look like? And mm-hmm. the truth looks like in this country is it looks like a lot of different things. It looks like a lot of different kinds of families. It looks mm-hmm. like a lot of people who maybe don't have families who are still living at home with their with their parents because they can't afford to go out on their own. And then like, what do I think truth should look like? And that's always like mm-hmm. the idealized version of your world. Like, and those once you have those three questions, you can kind of like build your world around it because. Mostly telling a story is about taking those expectations and either confirming them for a reader or subverting them. 
and subverting them in a way that feels earned and not like a sudden like, what the hell happened there? Why is this all of a sudden going? <laughs> so yeah, I, I think world building is like, it's again, like most writing, surprisingly easy and surprisingly difficult, but it really requires a writer to think hard and consider the place they live now and figure out how that echoes into their world. Mm. You definitely gotcha. have built a wonderful world in uh, Dread Nation and Deathless Divine. Yeah. Oh, it's a terrible world. <laughs> no, but it's just so rich. It, it is so real. It, no, when like, we were no. reading, we, nothing that happened made you think, oh, that's on. It's like, yeah, that, yeah I can see that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, but, the, but the reason people were like, the funniest thing is people were like, I found this this world so hard. It's so, such a hard world to occupy. I'm like, everything that happens, happened. Right? That's right. what, like, well, I'm yeah. like, yeah. Like, if you, like, look at history, everything that happens. I mean, maybe not to one person, because that's, like, whew, a lot. But, like, everything that happens is stuff that historically has happened. And, like, I know, like, you know, like, minor spoiler for Deathless Divide, but, like, the whole vaccine, like, subplot is stuff that happened. And, like, like I said, it's still trying to happen. And, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's like you think of like the story of like Henrietta Lacks and you're like, that was, you know, that was not a hundred years ago. That was within like my grandparents' lifetime at least. And so like, you know, maybe 50, 60 years ago, I'm like, that's not that far away. And I think that that's what we, we tend to forget. It feels real because it is real. It feels real because it's just, it's a one degree removed analog to the world we live in. Mm. So. Yeah, even um, I remember when the California wildfires were happening, which I feel like everything that happened before 2020, everyone's like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. (laughs) (laughs) When that was happening, I know they were spending a lot of incarcerated people to fight off fires, not Mm -hmm. not like you not even to win. You didn't get anything out of it. They're just like, I guess you're available to do this. So exactly like you're saying, it did happen. That's the important part. And it's still happening as the other piece. Yeah, I mean, I know in Maryland they had um, they had inmates building sewing masks. And doing building PPE, and not even for themselves, mm. but for the guards like that work in the uh-huh. prison. So I'm like, mm. yeah, like it's a thing that still happens. And not that every like inmate is a black person, but like still, there's like this idea. Though I think the rates are much higher among people yeah. of color, um, yeah. even like areas where it's like there is not a high black population. Whatever, like majority people of color there are there, it's the they higher. They ship place. them from other states. They ship yeah. them from other places. Oh, we don't have enough. Well, we'll ship you some. Yeah, but just like, they send them over there. But like, you know, that's what happens when you have for-profit prisons too. I mean, so, yeah. So, I mean, like the world is like messy, but that's why fiction exists. So we can hold a mirror up to that really stuff that we don't want to look at and say, here, look at it in a different way and realize it's still happening. Mm. Got you. Got you. No, that's Mm. real. And I guess kind of on that note a little bit. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Nice transition. (laughs) Thank thank you. Thank you. So, so yeah, so obviously, you know, like we're kind of describing, like, I mean, the world we live in can, can be one that's like, difficult and devoid of hope in a lot of ways. And I think we also see that just in in these books as well, because a lot of it is very much just real, very much based off of the world we currently live in. But something that I found really great about the characters in particular was that like, they always found like that hope, like they always found like that ability to like kind of move forward and keep fighting and like, you know, running from shamblers, even when like they knew more shamblers were like just around the corner. They're like, okay, girl, we're just going to like do what we can (laughs) just make it through. Right. (laughs) So like, (laughs) so I guess like, I would love to hear like, like what gets them to keep fighting the good fight and like both in like a literal, like, okay, like fighting the shamblers and whatever, but like just in the, all the things that the shamblers like also represent, like what kind of keeps people going? What keeps them like motivated to keep doing this? 
I don't know. I've always thought like the best thing you can do is survive. Right. And I, I mm. and even like, even in my own life when things were really, really bad, I've always thought like, if I can get through this, it'll be a funny story later. Um, right now it sucks. <laughs> right. But like one day it'll be like one of those things that you sit like around with your friends and remember like, remember that time this really terrible thing happened and you're like, yeah, wow. And then like, wow, I can't believe we got through that. And so I think it's like, I think characters have that, have to have that same part of humanity. I think it's just part of humanity to like, mm-hmm. just want to get through things. I think even like when you look at like action heroes, like they're always just like, maybe they have like, I need to get to vengeance or whatever. But like, sometimes it's just like, I just need to get through this day, just need to get through this day and it'll be fine. And I think that's a very human reaction, even when things are bad. I think right now there are a lot of people who are like just trying to get through their days, right? They're just like, you know, they're, you know, especially if you're on the front lines of this pandemic, you were just like, I just need to get through this one more day. And then like, I can worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And so I wanted to write characters who had that same, that same drive that most of us have, because we've all, I mean, we have not all been chased by zombies across the prairie, but we've all (laughs) had a really bad day. You know, we've all had a day where it seems like everything goes wrong. You know, your friends are mad at you. Someone misunderstands you. You know, Twitter's coming for you and wants to cancel you. And I just feel like that's like a very human reaction. It's just to want to get through. So like when you're writing a book, it's like, you know, so everything's so awful and everything's, you know, it seems like all hope is lost every single chapter. You have to remind yourself that you're still writing about people, even if they're fictional mm-hmm. people. And people have a drive to survive. People have a drive to thrive and people just want to get through it. And I think as long as you, you can write those characters, I think they'll resonate with people as they read. Mm. Got you. That's real. That's real. Yeah. Cause I was honestly just like reading this, like, whew, people are, <laughs> they are keeping up the good fight, but oh my, it's like, even when they made it to, to the end, it's just like, things are peaceful, but it's like, it, there's always this imminent threat. There's always something there. And yeah. it's just like, and I mean, yeah, I guess you could say the same thing about the world we currently live in. It's like, you know, struggle is always going to be there. Conflict is right. always going to mm-hmm. be be present. Yeah. And so it's just like, okay, well also my time is finite and I also have to like find love and make a life worth living while I'm here regardless. So yeah, I exactly. love that. I love that. Hmm. And that goes to another thing that we really love in the books is the developments of the relationships uh, mm. between Catherine and Jane and everyone. And we just wanted to talk about that. I mean, what does it mean to be in an apocalypse and still manifest love, community, and belonging? And the ways you did that, could you talk some about that and how you came to that in your book? Yeah, I mean, I think my friendships are so important to me. Like my friends, the people who I'm like ride or die for, mm-hmm. and the people I know who are also ride or die for me. And I, I feel like no matter how bad things are, as long as you have those relationships to kind of keep you steady, you can keep moving forward. Um, I, I think I've been married, I've been married for like 21 years, a very long time. Um, and like my <laughs> husband was a friend of mine, like before we like were anything else. And like to this day, that is like the most important part of the relationship is that like, if I am having like a bad day or if something's going down, I know he will back me up, even if he's like, you know, secretly you're wrong. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know I'm wrong, but you're just going to like, just hold the light so I can finish digging this hole for his body. Like, oh, wrong. Right? And that's what you want in your life. You want friends who are going to be like, 
I will hold a flashlight for you, but you're digging that hole yourself because you know you're <laughs> right. wrong. Mm-hmm. And so like, I feel like one of the things, especially when we talk about black womanhood, is one of the things that's like the, been the strongest and been the best thing about in my life has been the relationships I've had with other black women. It's also been like my friendships. They're the ones who like have kept me grounded. They're ones who've kept me going. And I feel like female friendship always gets short shrift. Um, especially mm. in YA books where it's always about a romance instead. Right. And I think it's really important to be able to like reach back to those friendships and say, Hey, like you got my back. Right. And not just like at the like chapter, like 34, when like this book is ending and the, the best friend shows up again after like things are settled down. I mean, right. like the thick of it, mm-hmm. um, you need, you need a co-conspirator, right? You need that person That's... in your life who you're like, get our driver. Right. Yeah, your getaway driver, exactly. Like, all right, we're planning a bank heist. Like, okay, which bank? Um, and like, <laughs> like they're there for it, right? And I, right. Think, I think that's one of the things that we just don't talk. We don't talk about the importance of friendships enough, I think. Um, because it's like, especially right now, I think people are starting to, <laughs> one of the things that's happening right now, and I don't know if, anybody, if you guys have experienced this, is like people I haven't talked to in like forever are like reaching out to me like, hey, yeah. see how yeah. you are? I was like, Oh, now I'm important, right? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't talked to you for five years. And now say, hey, I'm like, for all you know, I could be like sick on a ventilator and now you're going to show up. But your friends are like the ones who are going to check in with you, like, hey, I haven't heard yeah. from you. It's 10 a.m. and you haven't texted me yet. Where are you at? Are you okay? Is everything okay? And you're like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I got up late today. Yeah. So I do think friendship is so important. I think friends are going to keep you humble, they're going to keep you sane, and they're going to also, keep you lifted when you need that. And I think that's really, really why I, I wanted to write like a, a friendship as a central part of both Dread Nation and Deathless Divide. Because I do think it's also hard sometimes being friends with people um, mm-hmm. because it requires you to give up, not give up yourself, but sometimes compromise on parts of yourself that you're like, I, I'm awesome about this. And you're like, no, that's less awesome than you think. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when you find somebody who's willing to like let you grow and change and be that person you need to be and still stand by you, that's also a huge gift. And so, yeah, I like, I really wanted, I really wanted to like take the focus off of romance and romantic love and talk about friendship. Cause, cause having a friend is awesome. It <laughs> and is. being a friend too. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. I think that especially Deathless Divide, like, you know, shows us so well. It's like, you know, romance, like romance, you know, it's cute. It's cute. Yeah. But like things end often between people. And yeah. it's like, but through it all, it's like friendship, like that tends to be a type of relationship that's just is more s- cemented or at least more long lasting for a lot of people. And like, I mean, we saw how Callie up and left. She was like, girl, bye. like I, we're, we're not doing this. But Catherine, you know, through it all was just always there. And it was just like and, and that's just such a how much there is there and like just the substance behind that is just uh just so enriching and that's something that Akko and I actually talked about when we sort of like talked about this separately just like yeah like uh, the friendships between women here it's just so uh love it love it so here yeah Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. but and women women who are very very different that's true I just wanted to point out that I stand Catherine because I'm (laughs) (laughs) like down yeah yeah we all are we're just like she's amazing but it's so for the readers who haven't read it yet book one is from jane's perspective solely and then book two is split between Catherine and jane's perspective and so when you go into book two you're like and you're hearing things from Catherine's perspective you're like oh yeah that is actually what happened i was like wait jane when you told the story it was completely different right (laughs) (laughs) so that was just great to see the two of them from different perspectives and and their friendship 
kind of yeah both as individuals but also kind of what they'd made together so i think it's you know this book is great y'all like you should read it i recommend it but curtis i know you had this really great question about black speculative fiction in the future yeah we wanted to ask you what do you think is happening with black speculative fiction now and where do you see the future going i actually think it's been a really great time for black speculative fiction i think Publishing has really kind of taken a hard look at itself in the last, I would say, in the kids' side, it's been the last five or so years. In the uh, adult SFF side, we had a thing, I think, in 2009 called Race Fail, um, Mm -hmm. where it was kind of like this come-to-Jesus moment um, where everyone was like, oh, I guess I can't just, like, write a white character and, like, say that they're brown and that's a black person, right? Like, you can't erase culture. Wait, are you Um, saying we can't just make the covers of the books? it's just different to be a black person walking through life even if you were writing a world where there's like no racism and it's idealized it's like you're still going to have different expectations placed on that character by the reader than you're going to have for writing a, a white character. And so like, it was one of those things that like for a long time people resisted. And I think, I don't think it's, I don't think racism has gone away, but I do think there are a few editors and agents in publishing who are making a concerted effort to change the conversation, to realize that like, we can't just throw a black kid on the cover of a book about a white girl and, and call it good for all intents and purposes. Mm. And I think it's showing in the amount of, fiction that we see that's coming out and doing really really well like you know like nk jemison's books are always going to do well because she's a fan freaking tastic writer right like Excellent. like mm-hmm. yeah. write a grocery list and i'd be engrossed and be like eggs after milk why <laughs> genius oh <laughs> who yes. saw that coming <laughs> <laughs> like i feel like there's a lot of other authors who were kind of struggling to get even published because for a long time it was like one black speculative fiction writer to rule them all, right? It's like, mm. if you want fantasy, you had N.K. Jemisin. If you wanted sci-fi, you had Nnedi Okorafor. And I feel like it's we're breaking out of those molds. I feel like there are, are a lot of people doing different things. Um, we're seeing more authors writing short stories. Um, we're seeing more authors writing big fantasies. We're seeing authors bring in cultural perspectives with West African fantasies. And I think that's really great. I think it's I think that's exciting. Um, mm-hmm. I still need more black women writing horror because that's like where I want to read. Um, yeah. And I feel like Tanana Reeve has had to carry the banner for such a long time that she should get some company. But I also think it's, you know, that's probably the hardest area to break into is horror because horror is so specific, so narrowly defined as well. Um, but yeah, but like I do, I do think it's a really great time. I think I'm excited to read the stuff that's coming out. I think there's still a huge problem where white readers don't understand the difference between African um, written speculative fiction and black American written speculative fiction, because they're, they're just very culturally different. Like being part of diaspora gives you a different view than if you have like, you can name where you came from and you have your culture to reach back to. And I think for a lot of, (laughs) I think for a lot of publishing people, they're like black is black and that's, it's a black author. And I'm like, Oh no, it's a Nigerian author. That's, that's different. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, I think that's probably going to be the next hurdle is getting publishers to understand like that black culture is not a monolith, especially when you bring in diaspora politics and the such. And so like, yeah, uh, which I'm not touching by the way. (laughs) 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 
together. Don't email me. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> she's with that dumb beat. Yeah, we, we, like, we don't want the yeah, we don't want the Twitter mobs to come. Yeah, uh, I'm literally just saying there's very different ways what? in the storytelling and the culture, and that's right. all the only thing I'm saying. I do hope that we do see more people writing from the diaspora. I mean, I would love to see, like, one of the things I'm always interested in is building a fantasy based on the American Black diaspora. And I say American because I'm not even talking about Caribbean or Canadian or any. I'm talking specifically American Black diaspora. Like, what would that fantasy world look like? Like, how Mm -hmm. do you talk about things like oppression and the legacy of pain and societal exclusion and then also put it within a fantasy realm. And that's really what I would love to see. I, I'm just really excited that there are more authors. I'm excited that there are authors coming, new authors every day, every week, every month. Well, there were until we, <laughs> until right. everything went around. Yeah. But they're, they're still out there writing. And so we'll right. get to read. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a great time. I think, I think also, I think Black Panther did a lot of great things for, yeah. for yeah. authors. Oh down yeah i think like just busted open so many doors and just like kind of like blew the walls off the system and and people are like oh my god like people will show up and not just like black people will show up but like everyone will show up for a really story because like longest time it was like if it's a black fantasy it's for black people right like Uh (laughs) how many kids got handed sounder in elementary school who were black and like they didn't hand white kids sounder they got like judy bloom or ramona Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the nice things. It's like black fiction may cater to a certain cultural identity. It doesn't mean it's only for those people. Like anybody can read it and enjoy it. And mm. I think that's really something people are starting to realize. It's like we don't have to have all the black authors under this one imprint in the publishing house. Like we can publish black authors anywhere in any imprint and those books will do well because they're good books. Right. right. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Like just the idea of right black people and the black diaspora writing in any genre instead of like you know limiting it to one voice and then to your point earlier like and then having so many different perspectives of blackness so people realize it's not a monolith like that's what we're all hoping for in the future so that because i'm sitting here thinking i was like man i don't know how many books white people had so many books when i was growing up and it it would be some real niche cultural stuff like if you really think about the great gatsby that's specifically talking about the 1920s rich white people from new york like that's that's like such a a specific culture Uh and then we we all had to read it so it's like and you know your teacher's like everyone can understand this right and i'm like okay well then i guess everyone can understand wakanda too since i have to understand this very specific culture yeah so i i completely see what you're saying and i i hope that is where the future leads i'm excited yeah so if i can add on one of i know you were one of the uh creators of fire magazine oh yeah 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 and a subscriber from uh day one i'm a big fan and uh as marcy and ako tell you i'll push it out to people real quick hey (laughs) check this out yeah Mm -hmm, correct (laughs) but do you see with the with technology how is that helping to make it possible to get our voices out? And mm-hmm. uh, you see that increasing over time or what's going on with that? Yeah, I think I think it's one of the things that's nice things about social media and Twitter and uh, for better or worse, is that it's really easy to get that message out there, right? It's much right. easier to build community. Like black people have always been great about building community, but it's always been kind of hard to build community, especially in the speculative areas because, you know, there was like, I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, like, black people didn't read dragon books, 
right? Like that was a mm-hmm. thing. I was like, you can't read all that speculative fiction. And I'm like, well, have you ever thought that black people don't read all that speculative fiction because we don't get to be there? Mm-hmm. Or if we do show up, we're on the green mile, right? Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're a prisoner. Like, right, you're a prisoner, like healing some prison guard and then going to the electric chair. So like, like literally Oof. like the, like the appearance of black people historically was not great. But then you get in the early 90s and you have Storm on the X-Men cartoon. Like Storm was always in the comics, but like I think the X-Men cartoon really brought a lot of that to mainstream. You had Morpheus in the Matrix, right? Yeah, that's like true. how amazing was that moment where you're like, holy shit, he's not the bad guy. Mm, right. <laughs> oh my God, Lawrence Fishburne is a good guy. He's like that's the true. best good guy, right? Mm. And so like... Or like, Wesley Snipes. Oh my God. And Blade. Blade? Yeah. Jinx. Um, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so we always had those like smaller communities, but it was really hard to build community because you were always so disparate. Like if it was a lot of things, one of those things that like a lot of people didn't have a chance. If you went to like an early con, it was so many white people. It's still a lot of white people. Still mm-hmm. mostly like white people. There are growing groups of fans of color. And I think that's one of the things that's been nice about um, the internet is like just as much as it's given like the trolls easier access to band together and be terrible. It's also given communities that have been marginalized and excluded a chance to come together and build things. And Fire Literary Magazine is like an example of that. Right. Like nobody lives in the same like town for that magazine. We did all that stuff on the internet through like Skype chats, like through emails back and forth. And like, you know, it was a labor of love and it came together because we were all passionate about this idea of like the black speculative fiction matters and um, black speculative short fiction. This is actually mm-hmm. but like i think it's yeah i think it's like i think like we should see more of that we should see more people just taking charge and using that those platforms to like to change the conversation because i i'm so tired of having a conversation about like um why do diverse books matter and i was like we're here like right, what, right. What, what, like i'm standing in this room you want me to defend my existence like no i'm not gonna do that anymore what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna tell you these are the these are the books are awesome these are the books i'm reading and these are why i'm reading these books because this is what they're they're doing for the storytelling. And I think it's right. a much easier conversation to have when you're not the only person in the room, when you have like a community to have that conversation with you. Yeah. Yes. Oof. Wow. That's, that's uh, this, that is Yeah. <laughs> Damn. This, this, this has been a uh, eight hundred level graduate level <laughs> course <laughs> in writing. Um we're gonna, history. I'll tell you, history yeah. we uh yeah. Wow. And honestly, I think that's like a good note to like sort of conclude honestly like i feel yeah, like that yes. like that nugget yeah. right there I'm, yeah so period there um <laughs> so i guess as we as we conclude did you have any just like remaining thoughts that you wanted to share with our folks no i'm so glad you guys had me today it was a lot of fun glad to always talk about books i love books so much go read a book that's my remaining thought go read a book mm, right <laughs> any book <laughs> that's Got perfect you. and where can you know, our listeners and Curtis's listeners find you and follow up with you. Um, you can find me on Twitter. It's Justina Ireland. Um, you can find me on Instagram as Justina.Ireland. That's mostly just pictures of my cats. Um, hey. and, <laughs> and then you can find me all the time at my website, which is JustinaIreland.com. Beautiful. All right, guys. Y'all heard her, you know? Listen, exactly. But yes, Justina, (laughs) read books, y'all. Read a book. Um, But also, Justina, thank you so, so much. This was amazing. Like, I I thoroughly got my life. So thank you so much for joining us on our shows. Like, this is so much fun. such an honor. Mm -hmm. Oh, awesome. It's It's an honor to be here. This is great. So excited to talk to people. (laughs) (laughs) 